Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. Welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Show. I'm your host today, Bill Bannum. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about everything to do with organizational transformation and effectiveness. And our guest today is Rohit Manucha, Head of Human Resources at Asian Coca-Cola Beverages Company. Rohit has an extensive experience in working with CEOs and C-suite leaders in driving end-to-end organizational transformation across 19 countries. He has worked towards aligning organizations with their strategic agenda, managing change, and driving sustainable performance. He has worked across a diverse range of sectors, covering companies with varying ownership models and at different stages of business life cycles. His core experience is in organizational transformation and effectiveness, and he's developed a case studies, white papers, and lots more which are featured in various publications and quoted in a number of leading HR magazines on a host of HR-related topics. He has chaired and been a keynote speaker at a number of global events across UAE, London, India, Malaysia, Thailand, and Singapore. And he's going to be speaking at the upcoming online Hacking HR conference in March. Rohit, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the show today. Thanks, Bill. It's an honor to be here with you. So beyond my wee introduction there, please tell the listeners just a little bit more about your career background and your current role. Right. I think you covered pretty much most of it. So there's nothing much more I can add to it except the fact that I started working with KPMG first. Um, from there, I moved on to Hey Group. Uh, then I moved on to Pepsi, moved to uh, relocated to Oman. Uh, from there, my journey of Middle East really started. I joined a group called Dunia Finance. And from there, I'm now with ACCBC or John Coca-Cola based out of Dubai. So yeah, it's been quite a journey from consulting to corporate HR, the whole host of things. Okay, super, thank you. Now let's uh, let's get into the deep questions for today. Firstly, in terms of organization design and development, what, what does OD essentially entail for the modern organization? Well, quite honestly, whether it's a model organization or organization still uh, in the past, uh, the reality is that organization design and development primarily looks at complete interface between the organization strategy right down to how you link all the HR interfaces together so OD is literally your backbone or rather it connects everything together so that is basically looking at your strategy articulation the connection of the HR processes systems and at the same time constantly monitoring that and improving that from time to time so the way you could break it up is you could look at incremental changes which will be organization design organization development or huge jumps which may happen over a period of time or rather in a very short time frame which will be organization transformation to take the organization to the next level so that entire universe is od we'll be right back after this message it's time to transform your workplace for good espresso.com is the first culture benefits platform designed to help create total community well-being and recognition with an experience that hr and people love Join companies like Pinterest, Tesla, Box, and ServiceNow who are already using Espresso to make their cultures happier and healthier. Espresso.com is total well-being and culture benefits reimagined. Are you looking for more ways that HR can positively impact business outcomes? Visit Espresso.com. That's E-S-P-R-E-S-A dot com. We're culture benefits that make heroes out of HR. Okay, thank you. 
Now tell me, what, what skills does an effective OD practitioner require in your opinion? Right. Uh, so when we look at skills, I'm, I'm not going to limit myself to talking about uh, technical skills and behavioral competencies and knowledge and so on and so forth. What I would say is what the OD practitioner would require is to A, understand the ground well, exactly what is the current situation, what are we trying to address, where are we trying to take the organization to, and map out that entire journey. So at the same time, when we mapped it out, what are we going to do about it? So what are your next steps? Then what? Then what? How are you going to improve the organization? And then communicating that, getting everybody's buy-in on that and ensuring we are moving towards it. So it, it, it's, it's pretty much hands-on as I could possibly think of. Perfect. Thank you. So given, given what you just said there, when, when done in the right ways, what can an OD intervention delivered by a seasoned OD practitioner such as yourself uh, give to an organization? Right. And I think what you said pretty much uh, is the caveat which goes with having OD practitioners within your organization is when done in the right way. But the more important caveat to that is if it has buy-in of the top management and it have, if it has buy-in of everyone within the organization to see that change through. Uh, the important element which we need to consider is an intervention of any form uh, requires people to adapt to that change, to accept it and move on to it, right? Uh, if that's the case, then the distance within which change has to take place has to be reduced by that OD practitioner. And if they're good at their job, they're able to diagnose the problem really well. They're able to bridge that gap really well and make you transition to that really effectively. So if it seems as seamless as ever, it's like yanking a bandit off, right? You do it slowly or you could just decide to yank it off. Uh, and figuring out what works best for the organization is what an OD practitioner should need to do really well. So if I was to elaborate on it, uh, think about it this way. You see many instances of organizations going through transformation year on year. You see many organizations actually uh, cutting headcount and right-sizing to a large extent. While that also by some debatable elements is part of organization design. Uh, but if organization design, theoretically speaking, or was more proactive within that particular organization, you would never need to, theoretically speaking again, uh, result in right-sizing, primarily because what we would have done is pre-identified the adequate headcount required for a job, identified unique roles, identified your structure, mapped it out in terms of a five-year horizon, taken into account various factors which play into account of your operating model, your organization structure, your manning norms, and at the same time also productivity metrics. If all of that universe is working well, then you don't need to take drastic measures such as right-sizing you can perpetually look at adding headcount as you go along rather than scaling up and then scaling down a few years later. OD, if it is done really well within an organization, can help you navigate the rough seas. And at the same time, when things are going great, it can also help you be cautious and prepare for the worst at the same time. So you can accordingly fill air in your sails as you go along. Okay, so we're on the, we're on the, the good ship 
uh, organization and uh, that those, those seas are rough, Rohit, okay? Uh, and we need everybody to batten down the hatches here and uh, the, the, the large majority of the crew uh, for the purposes of this discussion are HR professionals. Uh, what are some of the biggest challenges for, for HR pros when working with, with leadership towards aligning their their organization with their strategic agenda managing change uh, driving sustainable performance uh, making sure that they've set sail and they're going to reach their their ultimate destination I think the starting point for anyone is to a build credibility um, now probably the organization if you're lucky enough in your particular role the organization feels the need to have you there and bring you in uh, primarily because they expect you to show them the path or at least be the steward to guide you in that direction. Uh, however, in certain cases, it just might be that there is no inherent need or understanding of a need uh, for this. And hence, educating the leadership team, explaining as to how you can actually contribute. And HR is not mere a function, like, for example, in this region, it is often confused as more of an administrative function, but rather a more strategic function where it can play a larger role and actually tidying everything together within the organization. So getting that buy-in and then building the credibility in terms of delivering uh, the strategic agenda becomes important. Now, managing change, like I mentioned, was very specific. You can have change which can be managed uh, um, either whether it's top-down or bottom-up, but the reality is that more often than not, you need to appeal to the individual within the organization, all the individuals in the organization, their personal preferences, uh, the way they would prefer to be communicated to, treated during such times, their fears being addressed. That is literally rolling your sleeves up, hitting the galleys, doing the work yourself, leading the front, and actually making that change happen. Uh, otherwise, the point of sustainability, like you rightly mentioned, performance, sustainable performance, does not hold true, or rather it is uh, a mere pass. Sooner or later, the ship will, crumbling, will come crumbling down. And then all of the uh, the good HR sailors will end up in the waters with the sharks and whatnot. And it'll, be, it'll be a terrible disaster. Quite a gory picture you've been, Bill. <laughs> okay, so let, let, let's just give a nod to uh, another one of the awesome HR titles out there. You, you, you recently wrote an article on human resources on Mind.net in which you discussed the design thinking framework. Can, can, you, uh, can, you, can you just take a little bit of time now and, and explain what it is? And why does design thinking is becoming so important for HR today when it wasn't so popular in the past? I think it was first developed in the 1950s. Right. So it has been design thinking per se has been there for quite some time. You're right around, around right around 1950s. Uh, I wouldn't say that it wasn't popular. Uh, again, popularity is not a not a metric by which we measure, but uh, the important aspect of here is that design thinking to a very large extent was not really understood because at that point of time, HR was in its nascent stages. As you would recollect, even a lot of our HR practices are something which have dark side to them, have come over from the annals of history and through uh, the armed forces and so on and so forth. And, and, and our understanding on HR is also evolving itself, but we still go back to those old concepts of Carl Jung and Johari Window and so on and so forth, which were also delivered or developed around the same time frame. Now, having said that, it does take a level of adoption because same as technology, you don't see a lot of organizations happening uh, are at the same uh, platform when it comes to technological adoption. They're all at different stages of technological adoption. Similarly, organizations were at different levels. The earliest example, what you could possibly think of design thinking is something which was called the congruence model, which is, again, a lot of the organizations use is gap assessment, simply put. 
you have a problem, yeah, which is a, as a situation, uh, and you have a place where you need to go, which is your 2B, your destination, your business objectives, your strategy, bridge your gap. If that bridging of gap is OD, the tool which is being used is design thinking. And what it does is basically it breaks it up into smaller pieces uh, or five phases where it talks about empathizing, basically putting yourself in those shoes, defining a problem, ideating, prototyping, and probably then testing it before you implement it. This process, no matter how many words you may choose to use it differently, uh, primarily has remained the same. Think about it this way. Uh, if design thinking was not being used in HR so much, as you said, popular, it was still being different sectors, different industries, different functions. For example, it has been used extensively uh, on doors, uh, sorry, in architecture. Uh, it has been used extensively. Uh, think about it this way, if aeroplane, yeah? uh, if you're sitting in an aeroplane and you do know that during the emergency exit, uh, you get extra leg space, correct? Now, typically what the airlines do is they charge you a premium to sit on, on that emergency exit. Interestingly, they don't ask you to fill up a questionnaire to assess whether you are uh, capable enough to operate the door. They obviously brief you, uh, but they don't even assess you psychologically to say whether you might just open the door midway. Hence, the door, which is the way it's designed, is not something which is easy to open. At the same time, it is easy to open at a time of a crisis. So that is design thinking. The concept of biomimicry is all about design thinking. The concept of what I talk about in HR, honeycomb, uh, effect, which is basically the ripple effect that if you touch any element of HR, for example, from job evaluation standpoint, you build it up to job analysis, job descriptions, you link it up to unique structures, to unique roles, to unique organization structures, to operating model, to strategy articulation. All of this links up together as the honeycomb and as a ripple effect is all part of design thinking as well. The beauty of HR is that A, the evolution of HR has been relatively slow. And off late, we've seen it suddenly pick up traction with the advent of AI and big data. But more importantly, our basics and our knowledge has remained the same. And design thinking is literally everywhere from talent assessment to talent management to career pathing to compensation designs. We use it everywhere. Okay. And I think we'd like to maybe uh, talk more now about uh, talent management, certainly, and how one treats uh, employees. Uh, I, I should just mention, though, so far we've managed to get uh, sh uh, analogies for for ships and sailing, and we've got planes. <laughs> we've got planes in there, right? So let's see if we can try and get a car or a train in, in one of your one of your answers before we wrap up for today. Um, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of bringing a spaceship next. Spaceships, yes, let's do that. Okay, uh, so in, in, the, in the context that you've just been speaking about there, can, can you explain how and why employees are now expecting the same experience uh, as employee as, as to they receive as a customer and why yes. organizations need to cater to that need? Right, so it's, it's basically pretty simple. Um, over the years, we focused on customer experience, right? We constantly said customers, gang, you have to focus on customer experience. Uh, however, if you look at it this way, how is your customer pool any different from your employee pool? It's not. It's the same. More importantly, uh, as your organization scales up, you inherently are reaching more touch points and more potential employees of the future. For example, my children probably could probably want to join ACCBC 10 years, 20 years later. Uh, and the way they would probably want to join the organization is based on the experiences that I had as an organization and not necessarily on the products alone. So this is something which stems from the mindset of linking design thinking together to employees, delivering enhanced employee experience. It also stems from the fact that 
there's a concept of employee advocacy groups within organizations, ERGs, which also exist, which earlier used to talk religion, sex, creed, and so on and so forth, which now grew up to looking at what our likes and dislikes are, and now forming groups bases that, and at the same time promoting a brand. So it's basically a nice mix of getting employee experiences and ERGs working together, primarily to create a synergistic experience for the future talent pool to join your organization. So for example, I don't know yet, but probably what we are doing right now with our employees has a positive effect on their children, their work-life balances, the way they are at home, at the same time, the way the neighbors feel about them, the way the neighbors and their neighbors feel like that, the impact that we have on employee experience is huge. And that is something which I think should have been leveraged a long time back. Uh, and, ha and, and at the end of the day, if an employee uh, really enjoys working with the organization, inherently or not, I'm not sure if they would end up being your consumer or not, or customer or not. But the reality is that it pays you back multiple times over than any of the branding exercises that. Wonderful, thank you. Now then, uh, the reason why you and I came together today is you'll be presenting at the HR Innovation and Future of Work Global Online Conference and Workshop. Uh, your session is called The Future of Work in the Middle East. Can you tell our listeners a bit about what you'll be discussing and the uh, hope for learning outcomes? Right. So without giving much away, <laughs> because it really wouldn't make any sense to give me up. <laughs> yeah, it might be just, just become, this might become a micro learning course of sorts then. <laughs> right. Um, so the interesting point is whenever you talk about the future, you have people who are actually at two extremes of the paradigm. So, the people who actually were like, this is the future, we are where we are, and we've reached the zenith. The other ones talk about singularity and talk about how exactly the future would be, which would be 100 years down the line, 200 years down the line, and so on and so forth. The reality for me is, the way I see future is like standing on a hill. Ah, another analogy coming your way. <laughs> it's like standing on a hill and looking at the horizon and then standing on the ground and looking at the horizon. My perspective is different. Similarly, for me as an organization, depending on where I am on that technological timeline, technology adoption timeline, my future is very different from probably somebody else who's 10 steps ahead of me. And the catch over here is when we talk about future of work in Middle East, that then explanation holds true for organizations across sectors, across businesses, across markets within UAE. And primarily, I want to that. I want to talk about what are the concerns, what future means, and what it is as of now, and what that journey will be. Pretty much, I would be linking back OD onto application of AI at work. So that's that's what I'm going to talk about. Awesome. So, uh, listeners, there will be a link in the show notes, I'm sure, to uh, to the the event happening in early March from the awesome guys over at Hacking HR. So, by all means, do check that out and register for it. I think it's going to be an awesome event, so you should totally join online. Uh, and you can do it, of course, from uh, the the safety safety and comfort from your own home. You do not need to get into a spaceship, hey, eh? or uh, or a train. Or, or a plane with somebody who's not trained to operate a door sitting next to you <laughs> just because he paid $20 extra for that seat. <laughs> and one last question for you for today, and that's uh, uh, how can having our listeners 
learn more about you how can they how can they uh connect with you maybe through linkedin or elsewhere uh do you have any upcoming sessions beyond the awesome uh talk that you're doing <laughs> with hacky hr uh, that you'd like to right so i'll be yeah awesome so yeah i can be reached out on linkedin uh, i will share my linkedin link with you you can probably click on that as well uh follow me on twitter i'm active on linkedin uh so definitely do that uh, yeah, I would be speaking at PDS Summit, which is People Development Summit, uh, in third and fourth of March, uh, teaming up a debate made over there. Uh, after which, uh, again in April, I'm slotted for another event. So yeah, I have a tight schedule on these events. I need to cut down on that a bit. <laughs> but yeah, uh, follow me on LinkedIn. You'll get day-to-day updates as to what I'm doing, what are thought processes. I usually have things which I tend to talk about, or in other words, rant about. You can read about all of it in LinkedIn. So yeah. Perfect. Well, that just leaves me to say for today, Rohit, thank you very much for being a guest on this episode of the HR Chat Show. Thanks so much, Bill. It was, like I said in the beginning, it was an honor to have a conversation with you. Of course, we forgot to mention submarines somewhere. So just for the heck of it, submarines. Submarines. Big yellow submarines. submarines. We'll, we'll get you back on for another show, maybe, where we can have an HR and submarine focus in some capacity. Yeah, let's do that. Should be good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've had a swimming time with you for, uh, for today. And uh, that lets us, leaves me to say uh, for our listeners, as always, until next time, happy working. Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast, brought to you by the HR Gazette.